I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm your host, Clayton Weir, and I'm super excited for this week's episode um, and our guest, Lou Tauchik. Um, I actually met Lou at a Notch conference three or four years ago and had um, what started as one of these blind dates. You'll know this if you're a a vendor, like product person or sales guy sets you up with these blind dates at the conferences. That turned out to be one of the more (laughs) thrilling conversations of my my career in and around banking and payments and products. And so um, I wanted to kind of, you know, bring Lou on the show today and relive that. And I guess just to set the context, you know, it was one of these things where session after session, the, you know, we were peak hype cycle about real time payments coming to USA and it was going to, um, going to change the market and change a bunch of things. I said, you know what, Lou, gosh, darn it. I just like, this is all exciting, but it just doesn't seem to be happening. And like, is that, like, when's this ever going to actually, when are people going to actually be using this? And when's it going to kind of move beyond hype? And, and Lou proceeded to explain to me a very compelling bull case for how he thought not only that this was going to become readily adopted, but how it was going to kind of fundamentally change the way businesses interact with each other, the way we interact with with businesses and each other as individuals. And, and, and I just thought it was kind of a version of the world that I wanted to share with all of you. So, um, you know, by way of a quick introduction, I think Lou is a kind of a, a more or less a, a lifelong kind of, you know, commensurate uh, bank product professional, spent a ton of time in, in the kind of payables and uh, treasury management space uh, across PNC and at, at Huntington Bank more recently. And uh, now is, I, think, I believe, identifies as semi-retired, not not fully retired, but um, is generous enough to give us a little bit of time on the show today. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Luke. It's a pleasure, Clay. Happy to be here. Awesome. Is there anything in your your background, uh, anything that, any blanks you want to fill in? The only thing I would mention is I actually did start my banking career at Mellon Bank uh, in Pittsburgh. And actually, it was my longest tenure there as well. And I was uh, there in the mid 80s through late 90s. When I joined in the mid mid 80s, uh, you know, Mellon was still sort of on the one, one of the three banks that was kind of on the leading edge of developing treasury management services. So it was a great time to be in product management and banking at that organization. So I did want to uh, kind of throw the, the Mellon Bank name into the background loop there because it was very formative for me uh, in my career. And this is the Mellon that's now Bank of New York Mellon. Yeah, it's a whole different yeah. place now. A yeah. whole different place now. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate you filling in the blanks. So if, if I remember the my version of events correctly i think the story started with something like imagine the whole world moving towards back towards a cash and carry economy or something kind of like that <laughs> that might be an apoc- <laughs> uh, apocryphal i can't even say that word now story but the uh um maybe walk us through that like walk, walk me through the bull case of of a world you know beyond all the hard sort of you know final mile and implementation challenges that are still i think you know, happening to make real-time reality? Like, what's what's the end state look like? Like, what's the the sort of bull case in, in how this changes the world? Yeah, and I think that's actually how 
I started our conversation that day was, yeah, these, you know, all these uh, sessions we've been in, everybody's still kind of mucking around in the mud, you know, banks still trying to make business cases happen, vendors still trying to figure out what they need to do to their systems that support banks and, and, and businesses and so forth to, you know, adapt them to the, the real-time payment space. And frankly, as, you know, we're here, what, probably three or so years down the road from that initial conversation, a lot of that mud breaking is still going on to get things in place. But I, but the way we did start that conversation is I said, look, let's not focus on what's going on now. You know, let's look, you know, five to eight years down the road. And, you know, what are the possibilities of, of having this kind of real-time payments infrastructure in place for both business-to-business transactions and consumer-to-business transactions? Um, so it was, it was much easier to think about it from that perspective, like get through you know, all this, uh, you know, nastiness um, in this intervening period where we have to uh, have, you know, a myriad of organizations transition their technology um, to, to make this real-time payments thing really work the way it's intended to work. And again, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. But the promise is just so enormous that it's hard not to imagine it happening. You know, we're we're still living in a world that was, you know, built in the probably, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, when, you know, wire transfers were, were a big way for large payments to be made from business to business. And then, you know, this wonderful ad, uh, adaptation of, of ACH came about that allowed, you know, consumers to engage in electronic transactions with businesses and vice versa. All of that happening on top of the traditional check-based, paper-based payment world. And even though we're decades down the line from that, businesses are still operating largely in a, you know, paper-based paradigm. You know, the whole thing about, uh, when you think about business payment terms, 210, net 30, discounting, and so forth, that's all based upon a, a paper-based world where transactions start on paper. They they would go through accounting departments. Um, there'd be an, an invoice mailed out, takes days to receive, goes through the corporate mailroom, gets to the right party there. More days go by. The timeframes involved uh, in that legacy paper-based world are just astronomical when you think about it in today's real-time paradigm. And, you know, all the consumer tools that are available now, you know, PayPal and, and uh, Venmo and, and now Zelle uh, with banks and so forth, have kind of taught consumers and, you know, even the people that work in businesses are also consumers, you know, what it's like to live in a, in a more real-time electronic-based environment for their personal transactions. So I think that leads them to use their imaginations more in terms of how a real-time payments environment would uh, really turn that, that paper-based paradigm for business payments on its head, um, throw it out the window, actually. But let's just stick to the current you know, reality of, of the ISO 2022 payment structures and the request for payment message that's part of the RTP network. That replaces that paper invoice. So now it's an electronic invoice that's exchanged instantaneously, basically, from one party to another. Once a system on the receiving side is able to ingest that request for payment, uh, then logic can be applied to determine when that payment is to be sent and you know, extract the contents of, of the real-time payment, or the, I'm sorry, the request for payment with all the invoice detail that would come with it, all the various segments that support that, that uh, contents of that transaction, apply you know, logic, maybe even uh, with the assistance of artificial intelligence to determine if there are any uh, shortages, you know, in terms of the actual delivery of the goods or services that would, would factor into that payment being made. And then within 
again, seconds typically, a decision can be made on, on making that payment. And then, of course, the payment flows back through the RTP rail to the recipient, along with supporting detail about, you know, any uh, adjustments that were made to that transaction. And again, the original sending organization can now validate that data, vet it against uh, its records um, and update its systems appropriately and perhaps send inquiries back to their trading partner with a request for information message. And again, there could be a, a corresponding answer with a response to a request for information all through the RTP network. This is all happening you know, system to system, basically, assuming the right development has been done on, on both ends, uh, the technology is in place, as I said, to make that happen. So once you can do this, you, you, you know, throw that paper-based paradigm out the window, get into this now electronic one system talking to another system, so an AR system talking to an AP system, vice versa. Well, it's maybe, you know, pause there and un unpack that because i mean it's very i think information dense sort of version of events but i mean a couple things that stand up to me about what you just said i mean if we one of which i think is just generally profound when you think about it is i think it's safe to say that the purpose the ach network was really purpose built to help banks settle and clear checks kind of amongst each other and amongst the people involved, right? It was kind of the primary driver and investment. And really everything about it, it makes sense, right? It, and, and I don't ever want to say anything bad about the ACH network because I'm a, a big defender that like you build something 50 years ago and have it be as profoundly like powerful and still work, you know, 50 years from now the way it has. So that's great. But that was the context it was built in, right? And it, it, it was built to, to move money in an in aggregate across those parties. But when you think about the core of these new things, and this, I don't think this is the way banks think about treasury management services very often that they sell to corporates, but the point of this RTP and, and these messages in these modern systems are the sequence of information flows should match something like the reality of how businesses talk to each other, not the way how banks talk to each other or how banks talk to businesses. And I think that's a pretty like di profound difference in of a way to think about the world as a beginning of this payment network, right? Um, just, it, there's so many implications. And so, you know, this idea that there's not a, a purchase order thing, but I mean, even the fact that we're having that conversation means that it's come a long way, right? That it has the idea of, you know, uh, this chatty relationship between a vendor um, and a, a, between two counterparties that are trying to do business together is, is just a, like it's, it's completely different than our concept of how payment systems or tools work today. Correct. Correct. So banks are still in the process because that's where the money is, right? Trusted parties and so forth. And, and I think there's still a major role for banks to play. Treasury management services that were developed by banks were, were really developed in response to all the the messiness that was involved in business to business payments, um, you know the the old lockbox world was created to reduce mail times. Right, banks had a you know an idea to to leverage uh, the quantity of of transactions and work with the postal system um, on you know expediting delivery of mail uh, and doing twenty four seven processing to to reduce float in the whole process. And you know. Other services around, you know, control disbursements to help clear checks and, and secure checks uh, when, you know, when fraud was starting to become more prevalent and as an answer to fraud and, and various other services in the treasury management space, space um, you know, were, were developed to help handle 
you know, again, just the complexity and messiness of that paper-based world. You know, interestingly, you, you mentioned ACH, but, you know, there was also this thing called EDI, Electronic Data Interchange, uh, that came out, you know, shortly after that, uh, probably a decade or so after uh, ACH was first developed. And it was really to, you know, put the ACH monetary transaction on steroids, if you think about it, right, to, to put all this other data uh, in those transactions so that, you know, the, the scenario I just walked through earlier in the RTP space was really, a, you know, initially conceived in, in the EDI world. Um, the problem was that there, there were no effective standards created in the EDI space uh, to help trading partners of any type talk to anyone else. You know, there were certain industries that did make EDI work effectively where there are, you know, is a, a very large buyer uh, that was able to, you know, apply enough leverage against some larger suppliers to get the data formatting worked out between them in a very customized way. The concept of, of, of you know, this, this whole RTP, you know, RFP, RFI chattiness, as you called it, was really first, I think, conceived in the EDI world uh, just because of the lack of, of standardization. And probably some security issues uh, early on. You know, it just didn't didn't uh, flesh out the way everybody thought it would. I think the healthcare space, you know, was able to apply their own standards, create their own specific EDI transactions uh, to make it work more effectively for them. But I think we all recognize that even only the largest healthcare organizations and some of the largest bank players and, and other software vendors that play in that space have really been able to uh, even make that world work effectively in the healthcare space still doesn't uh, work effectively for consumers and small businesses and so forth. No, totally. And I, I mean, in my, my you know, brief exposure to this, I think some really large enterprises were able to make EDI work just because they were such a, you know, they were kind of a sun in their own solar system. So if you're somebody like Walmart, you can shove it on the your whole vendor stack. Or if you're a car manufacturer, your supply chain is so tightly integrated, right, that you guys can... Mm -hmm can can make the investment but if you're talking normally small to small or small to big there's just no on-ramps right either the ubiquitous business applications need to do this and in, in this case if you want to be bullish on why the the iso message kind of based payment systems are going to do good is the the banks are a pretty ubiquitous on-ramp right if they do a good job of making this available to businesses yes exactly exactly and that's that's a big part of this whole thing is just you know, expecting the banks to to make the investments required to put those connections in place and to build the interfaces that both their their business customers and their consumer customers are able to use effectively so that they, you know, the small businesses and the consumers don't need to worry about building, you know, translation engines on their side. You know, but that requires, again, work on, on the, the part of the banks to, to make those interfaces uh, work properly. So, something I thought about, you know, and, and another way to look at, at this, you know, this problem. So it becomes broader than just just payments when you marry it this way. And it really comes to cover the totality of the cash cycle or the kind of, you know, supply chain integration. And I was I did a little research. I, I don't know how much you would trust these numbers. because I don't know how you would really know. But I think PwC estimated the global you know working capital base to be something like four and a half trillion euros in 20 mm -hmm. 2018 number and so like the canadian stock market market cap is like three million canadians so be you know less than half of what the global working capital just an insane number and they estimated as about being you know about a third of it should be able to be carved out and you would think fundamentally that working capital and cash cycle is should be 
having a float is the cost of non-integration, right? Of these things not kind of working um, and there being any data loss between two partners. And so like you would think in a world, the way technology has evolved, it would be going down, but it actually like in their numbers, I get it growing 10%. So another 380 billion of float from 2017, 20, like it's just, it's kind of unfathomable. Like it's a, it's just a, a problem that's so big and, and maybe we don't care because it's a zero right this minute. It's a 0% interest rate world, but you think the, the pressure in the games to solve this would be, you know, immense. Right. Yeah. I mean, with, with payment systems now, you know, even as evolved as they are today, payment float, I think, is, is less of an issue than really the information float. So it's that exchange of data between organizations and, and you know, let's face it, with any size organization needs information, needs the data uh, to operate effectively. And, you know, the whole growth in, in you know, the, the growth forecast and working capital that you mentioned I think is largely driven by the fact that businesses can get away with delaying payments. You know, so there are more more than enough stories of of you know the whole discounting situation, which initially was was an incentive to to make prompt payment, um, just becoming a, a cost of doing business for a seller because you know their buyers are saying, you know, hey, I'm going to take your your products. And I'm going to pay you in 60 or more days because I can. And, you know, there's no real incentive because you've not you've not fought me on the fact that I took this discount, even though I paid you 60 or 90 days you know, after the fact. I still took the discount you offered for, for prompt payment. Uh, you never came back and, and fought me because you don't want to lose me as a customer. Right. There's there's that whole game that gets played there. So even in, the, in this you know, new fangled world of, of RTP where systems will be able to talk to each other, it's still going to be interesting to see what sort of incentives are put in place to reduce that information float. You know, the payment float, again, is, is something I think is is being largely driven out. Um, and I think the this, you know, terrible pandemic we've been through for the past year, I think, uh, has helped drive some of the speed of, of moving people off of checks as a form of payment. And you know, hopefully it's, uh, you know, getting well below 50% of, of all transactions in the business world at this point. But I think we'll see that accelerate as well, just in response to the fact that, you know, people were forced to work remotely. You know, it was difficult to get people involved in, in actually, you know, collecting the mail to, to get checks in place and so forth. So more incentives uh, from really external factors um, outside the payment space. I think will drive some acceleration there as well. But there's always going to be a need to have the proper incentives in place between businesses, between trading partners, to get them to behave the way they can behave. So again, this RTP rail is going to make things possible to work very quickly and, and talk system to system and, and chat, and chat between systems and so forth to figure out all the, the you know infinite details of the transaction that took place. But are the trading partners going to have the right behavior. It strikes me, this is my new catchphrase. I mean, uh, you kind of look to what the credit card guys are doing today and that's kind of what, you know, they kind of usually know where the ball is going, usually because the economic incentives are the best for them, right? To be on the forefront of these things. In some ways, the way that kind of level three data works in commercial card is almost like this, right? It kind of incentivizes the whole value chain to be like, well, if you, the more context you pass with the payment, the cheaper it is for both of us, right? So we, you know, the, so the price is literally different of, you know, my cost of acceptance of what I'm going to bake back into inflation on your prices, like prices I quote you and stuff. Like it's just a, there's a legitimate and clear economic incentive to have kind of straight through processing with high degree of information context. Yes. Yeah. The value of that information flow. Uh, that's a great example of it. No doubt. 
And so I also get the impression, right, is, you know, historically in any aspect of society, when you massively reduce friction on a market, all of the things we think about, so discounting is one example, but any form of sort of factoring on the receivables or the payable side or, you know, all kinds of intermediate finance, like people, whoever wants to hold the float here is going to be able to bid on it in the future too, right? You know, if, if you had this all as perfectly stuck together as this, like the we could get it onto whatever the right balance sheet is for these different relationships and transactions, right? It, we could optimize who needed the cash the most or didn't, you mm-hmm. know, or wanted to hold the note, right? And it, it could be very efficient. Yeah, I mean, there, there could be a whole new marketplace for intermediaries like that. That opens up as, as you know part of this and, and you know where do they sit in that in that value chain i probably need a couple of beers before i can think about that straight yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know that that's a, that's a whole different dynamic that has to get factored into this you know i think i think there's an argument there uh or maybe an easier way to think about it uh on the consumer side with real-time payments you know there's there's a has been a move over the last couple of years to, to go to you know the concept of a daily payroll and i think you know the the um the gig economy uh, has really driven that, right? And, and I think that's moving even further into to other business types, casual labor and so forth. So if you get into, you know, again, you know, why do people get paid every other week or once a month or whatever um, when they're working every day, um, you know, perhaps a few years down the road, we get to a, a point where, you know, people are paid as they work. Um, so, you know, let's not get down to a minute payments, but let's, you know, cut it off at a day payment, you know, so if you're getting paid every day and there's still a great proportion of our uh, consumer base that has been living paycheck to paycheck for a long time, you know, there are going to be a, still a preponderance of, of, of working people that will now morph into a world where, okay, there's a daily payroll. What does that do to things like car payments or mortgage payments? Do they now get pulled in, you know, from a monthly payment cycle into perhaps a daily payment as well, you know. So you you work, you get paid for the day, and you make your daily slice of your car payment. You make your daily slice of your mortgage payment. You know what does that cash flow difference now do for the lenders, uh, the creditors on on those sides of the transactions? I would definitely see them be excited. The, the creditors being excited about having this really now almost instant early warning system in place. If a payment is not received today when it was expected today and being able to to react to, uh, you know, potential hardship situations uh, much more quickly than they can in, in the current environment on a monthly payment cycle. Um, and I think there, again, will be opportunities there to drive incentives uh, for consumer behavior in that in that direction uh, with the advantages that the, the creditors will have, you know, just from aggregating that that new enhanced cash flow um, as well. And I think there are security aspects of all that as well you know, that have to be dealt with. You know, why why do people like RTP or, or potentially will, why will they like RTP? Why it will be different? I think there's a whole different security model uh, in the RP, RTP infrastructure that has been in place before. And there are likely to be some incentives for banks to develop products around that as well. And let's, let's park that one and come back to it in a minute. But let's just play out this consumer thing because this has always stuck with me since you've kind of played this narrative to me the first time it it's it's interesting I, I just you know if you're now a high school age kid in north america it's quite possible at your part-time job and like 
a QSR, right, at McDonald's, you might get same day push to debit card payroll. Like it just, they kind of view that, I think, in that industry as a different sure, You go to college, you start getting paid by the ride. You know, if you're doing, taking mm-hmm. Uber rides on the weekend, paying mm-hmm. to college, like your mind is going to be absolutely blowing when you show up for your, you know, an- summer analyst program at the bank and they pay you, you know, T plus 14, <laughs> T plus 30, like it, like it, like the world isn't going to make sense. And I, I think like it could be in relatively short order, right? Where that we demand kind of real, you know, towards real-time payroll. And I, I think you're right. Like as a side of benefit, potentially has all kinds of great budgeting things, but yeah, then it's like, well, the point of this is if you're sitting here as an entrepreneur or an investor, you know, venture capitalist, it's like, well, look at literally every transaction in the world that doesn't settle T plus zero. And it's, I think it's just this mosaic of opportunities, right? Because it usually means there's a business operational problem, some kind of a data exchange problem like this. And it's going to be at zero eventually. You might as well be the person that solves the business problem, right? And it, exactly. it I think it's just a great, like, I think it's literally a cheat code for the, you know, there's there's a just a trillion or $2 trillion of market cap opportunities just following those things down to T0 clear. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that whole, you know, the, the behavior of, you know, the, the younger generation, if you will, you know, I don't want to pick a, a certain, um, you know, millennial designation or whatever, but I think, you know, think about it going back to the um, the, the Great Recession of, of you know, 07, 08, uh, where a lot of younger folks saw, I think, what their parents went through or maybe what they went through in, in, in the credit environment and the impact it had um, in at that time frame and kind of swore off credit. Right. I think that really helped boost the use of debit cards um, as opposed to credit cards. And, and you know, I think that generation uh, was kind of uh, jaded, if you will, from from credit environments uh, as a result of, of that great recession. Uh, and I, I think that's driven that acceleration of instant satisfaction, if you will, or, or you know, think about just you know, living on a, on a quote unquote cash basis, even though it's not currency. Right. It's it's you know more real time money. I think that that whole event has has kind of colored. Uh, what's happening in that space, um, you know, over the last decade or so. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in some ways BMPL and like the explosion of that is almost a direct echo because it's like, well, like, I mean, it's in lots of cases, the free sort of, you know, it just looks like layaway, right? Like in some ways it's mm-hmm. just kind of a, a, an echoes back to a cash based installment payment system that, that we already have. Like in lots of cases, it doesn't go very far beyond what a normal credit card clearing term would be you know on plus 21 or plus 30 so mm-hmm. um i i think it i think that all works um so that's the consumer side we talked about the business side i think the security thing is interesting we should just go back to that for a minute that strikes me as the other thing that is so cool about the the how the rtp system potentially maps to the actual business process because what we've seen the sort of scourge of the industry bin is kind of the increase in AP fresh, you know, phishing and the, the, the mm-hmm. issue controls. It is quite interesting when you start to envision a world and, and who wants to take this risk on and take the responsibility. I mean, everybody's going to have to, but well, all of a sudden you have two banks and the, and, you know, uh, non-bank, you know, very serious institution in the, in the clearinghouse or the fed in between just your, invoicing and your counterparty relationship like the potential to make that a very secure and visible relationship as opposed to me emailing you a pdf or i guess you're going to email me the like 
hundred thousand dollar PDF for your appearance fees for this podcast. <laughs> like right. that that not being an email and going through hypothetically this this kind of a system, like there's all kinds of value propositions to be created there, I think, as well. Yeah. It, you know, the whole fraud space in terms of what's happened over the last couple of years has probably five years, it's really accelerated. It's terrifying, right? For for any business. And um the most successful type of, of fraud events have been those phishing events where a human being is tricked by another human being uh, into making a payment that, you know, is improper, is fraudulent. You know, and, and I think that all happening in the same time frame as the development of instant payments, real-time payments, terrified people as well. Like, you know, remember all these discussions about, you know, faster payments just means faster fraud. And I think it really is just the opposite. Um, there's more intelligence embedded in the exchange between trading partners. There are some very definite security differences uh, in place on the RTP rail itself. When you have all the information captured in, in data, you know, in bits and bytes, it becomes easier to apply, you know, artificial intelligence rules and so forth to to identify improper transactions or inappropriate transactions. So the the opportunities to secure those transactions, I think, are are accelerated in a faster payments world, not the opportunity for, for faster fraud. So, you know, again, it's a matter of applying the proper tools. But, you know, going back to one of the early part of our conversation, you know, when you have a an AP system talking to an AR system, there's no human being in between. Phishing isn't a thing, right? Uh, so now you have to, you know, the fraudsters are going to have to crack into those transaction streams, or crack into the, the systems themselves. And, you know, there certainly are plenty of organizations that work hard on a daily, daily basis to secure systems from external attacks. And the, that that pace will have to, you know, to keep up as as the, the fraudsters, uh, you know, become more sophisticated as well. But it's more practical, I think, to think about it in terms of securing systems uh, than securing individuals and, and their behavior. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. I, I, I just, I think it's... I think it's going to be interesting as an amazing opportunity. And I mean, obviously hum- humans are you know part of the problem in that today, right? Us kind of reading emails and, and sh- shuffling PDFs around isn't, isn't necessarily the, the best solution, right? You know, machines and systems can be very high context, right? Like, you know, normally you pay Lou only a hundred bucks to come on the show, not a hundred thousand. So like, why, <laughs> why is there more zeros this time? Right. Uh, exactly. So, uh, I think I think that's an interesting opportunity as well. Yeah, and and the whole the whole social engineering attacks, you know, in the fraud space are leveraging social dynamics that are in place in, within even within organizations. You know, some of the more successful uh, invoice fraud fraud attempts were based around the fact that you know there was a an expectation that the CEO of an organization would have very high demand uh, expectations on their staffs. And, you know, the staff would never question an instruction from the CEO. And, uh, you know, those early attacks were, were very successful because the person who received this email that looked like it came from Joe Smith, who ran the company, indeed was not. And um, after the fact, um, you know, heads rolled or, or whatever uh, as a result of that, because, you um, you know, there was this social dynamic that took place that disincentivized questioning transactions. Systems aren't going to have that problem. We, we always joke um, when we get those emails, it always says, please send the wire. And our joke is we always tell it's fraud because Lisa would never say please. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted you, to, wanted you to send the wire. It would be a lot more, a lot more firm. So, um, 
I mean, just kind of, I guess, to maybe put a bow on this, I, I think we we obviously touched on a lot of different ideas, how, how it's going to affect B2B, how it's going to uh, shape down to, you know, individuals a little bit and how we interact with each other, interact with our employers and, and our probably providers of credit to us largely. Like, is there any, you know, to put a cherry on this, is there anything else that you, you want to, you know, put out there into the universe around this? I think that my biggest concern has always been having organizations, whether it's banks or technology companies or, or whatever, being able to put together the appropriate business cases to make these things happen. Because there has to be a lot of investment based upon a promise of what's going to happen. And so, you know, I, I think there needs to be some work done around building those incentive systems for, you know, B2B payments or C2B payments that look much like, you know, award points in the credit card space or, you know, discounts for early payments and, and that sort of thing. But but kind of have people take that leap ahead in terms of what this world could look like and conceive of those incentives to offer up front to make the transition happen faster and therefore help support business cases for tech investment. Because it's really tough to make multi-million dollar investments based upon what you know might happen someday so i think there's a that that whole factor that has to come into play around thinking about how to incentivize this transition to get us out of this you know muddy area right now uh of making this transition from the paper-based paradigm to the instant payments paradigm i i couldn't agree more with that and i i mean i think it's hard i wouldn't want to do it right i'm not i'm certainly not smart enough to write the business case to 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 free up the millions at the bank, but I, I think the risk is the the op you know the opposite way of putting it is, I mean someone else is going to come up with those value add things right, and it's you see it today. I had heard some number about like what percentage of real time payment messages are originated between PayPal and Venmo, like it's do dominant right. So they're they're getting the market based benefit from somebody else's investment, right? And so if, if, if the financial institutions can't find those niche sort of business models and incentives on top of this, they're going to end up as, you know, and we've seen that like in some cases where the pricing's kind of gone to commodity pricing on origination on this already. So you're, you're kind of out your initial investment, but it, it, those are hard questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there is there, you know, there, there are value points uh, in all those exchanges uh, again, I think you know the value of the information is is you know has already probably outpaced the value of the the payment transactions themselves. There's got to be business cases built around monetizing that and taking that to market. Absolutely agree, um, and I just think that that's that's maybe a, a really awesome point to wrap up the conversation. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I I think that was. That was neat. I, I really appreciate your perspective on this. I'm, I'm sure the audience will as well. But um, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was fun. Good luck. Clayton. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and th thanks to everyone for, for listening. As always, we appreciate it. If you love the episode, always uh, invite you to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, share it with a friend. And as always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, um, never hesitate to email info at fivespan.com. Thanks again for listening. Bye.